what's happening in today's sermon, even though we'll do everything we can to uh, lock it together. Luke 22, if you got it, shout, I got it. You need a second, say, hold on a second. I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. I was uh, trying to buy myself some time with that little assignment for Tamika, so... uh, Verse 47, let's go to the word of God. And the word of God is blessed. If you can stand, please stand for the reading of the word. If you cannot, please honor the word of God. He says this in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, you have come out against robber with swords and clubs. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me then, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. But this is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. I want you to look over at two or three people. We're continuing our series called God on the Move. I want you to find three people and tell them a God in a garden. A God in a garden. And when you get to that third person, when you get to that third person, I want you to stay fixated on that third person and tell them it had to happen. It had to happen. Now, Father, I do bless you and I thank you, God, for this day. I thank you, God, for this word. I thank you, God, for this moment. And Father, we arrest the atmosphere with your angels. We arrest the atmosphere that our hearing may be clear and our speaking may be succinct. God, that we don't speak from head to head, but from heart to heart. God, that you would rule this place by your Holy Spirit and lives won't just be changed, but we'd be transformed. Father, I pray that you would decrease me, that that, that you would increase in the building. Anoint me to be used as clay. And Father, I pray that he that hath an ear, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. And I give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, somebody shout amen. Amen. On your way to your seat, smile at your neighbor. Say, it's just church. It's okay. It's just just church. On Saturday, September 23rd, 1778, British Major John Andre was captured by the American forces. He was handcuffed. He was taken to the local prison where he was held to be tried. When they were going through his belongings, they found in his belongings a series of letters that belonged to one General Clinton and one U.S. commander of the Philadelphia Army's Benedict Arnold. In those letters, what they realized was that they, between each other, were conspiring to overthrow a United States barrack and a United States holding point, and that this particular place in Philadelphia was such an important aspect of the advancement of the war that the British felt like they needed an inside person that could help them pull this off. Arnold, who was eyed because of his disparaging remarks that he made publicly against the Continental Congress, remarks that were critical of the fact that he believed that he should be placed in a higher rank than what he was in, remarks that he believed that he should have a command post that was larger than that of the persons in Philadelphia. It was in this space and in these letters that the United States government realized that they had a traitor, that they had a betrayer in their midst. 
what happens after that is none short of things that movies are made of. Benedict Arnold then decides that he can no longer go back to the United States to plea his case. So instead, he takes on a similar-like position for the British Army. He was the U.S. commander of the forces in Philadelphia. Now he was the commander for the British Army in Philadelphia. And all of this he did, he was rewarded a $20,000 purse for weakening the forces of the U.S. Army so that the British can gain a stronghold. The challenge with what Arnold did not only challenged the United States so much, President, or excuse me, at the time he was General George Washington, commander of all of the U.S. forces, was infuriated when he caught the news. What his first reply was, was he got in contact with the British government and said, let's make a swap General Andre for Benedict Arnold. When the British decided against that as a, as a, a bargain, they immediately hung General Andre the sentence that they were likely holding out for Benedict Arnold. Arnold caught the fate, caught the ire rather of the United States for obvious reasons, but he also caught the ire of the British command and the British soldiers as well. Why did he catch the ire of them? He caught the ire of them because they realized that he simply could not be trusted. Because not only did he become a turncoat against the United States, now fighting for the British, he was also fighting the men that he once commanded, the men that he once took up arms with, the men that he struggled with, the men that he raised from being young boys into being young soldiers. And he had a hard time earning the respect of the British because he was a turncoat. And everywhere he went, he was placed with the scarlet letter as traitor. So much to the degree that even before the war was over, he left the United States or what was then the colonized places he left. And he went to retire and retreat the rest of his life in London in relative obscurity. And he filled the rest of his days away from his homeland, separated from his gifting and his opportunity to have a gift or operate in his gift in a place that didn't honor what he did for them. When they asked, when, they, when he realized that he was known and would be known as a traitor all throughout the known world at the time, Benedict Arnold wrote a letter to the people of America. It was called to the inhabitants of the Americas. He wrote a letter, and in that letter, this is what his justification was for betraying his country. And I quote, to love my country actuates my present conduct. However, it may appear inconsistent to the world who very seldom judge rightly any men of these actions, end quote. What he said is that the reason why I did it is not for the reasons that history is going to say I did it. History is going to say when they look and appear into my life, they're going to look into my life and realize that me and my wife had a $12,000 debt. And they're going to say I did it for the $12,000 debt. They're going to look at my life and realize that they offered me $20,000 to do this, which was a lot of money in 1777, 2019. He said they're going to look at my life and they're going to realize that even though because the plot foiled and failed because of uh, uh, the generals being caught, because the plot failed, he only really actualized about $6,500 of that of that bounty. He said they're going to look at my life and they're going, to re they're going to say that he's just a disgruntled guy who didn't get to get to the levels in politics and in the military that he wanted to get to. And those are the reasons why they're going to say that I became a turncoat. He said, but I really didn't become a turncoat for any of those reasons. The reason why I changed is because I loved my country. And in order to understand why Benedict Arnold made the choices and the decisions that he made, you have to understand something about the way the United States was set up back then. It was only 13 colonies. The, uh, the, the British Army had more members in the army than the entire 13 colonies had inhabitants. When he looked at it, the British had given the United States a plea bargain the then United States, a plea bargain that essentially said, you can be free, just come underneath our rule. 
and to Benedict Arnold, that was enough. We got what we wanted. We have our independence. We won. We, the reason why we set out to fight, we have accomplished it. We can stop now and go under British rule. Because if we do not, the British will bring a wrath on us that our victory, that we don't have the capacity to handle. He was afraid not for himself. He was afraid for all of the inhabitants of the Americas. And because he felt like the leaders of America were making the wrong decision, he took decision-making into his own hands, and he became known to us as a traitor. So much to the degree that when you or I betray someone, we often don't even call him a traitor. We call him a Benedict Arnold. This becomes apropos because I want you to understand the concepts behind what is going on. Is that I say, you oftentimes hear me say that people do stuff for a reason. That no matter how off the radar, how to the left or how to the right, what it is that they do is, how, much, how good or how bad it is, how pretty, how ugly it is, there is something driving every decision that each one of us makes. And people do it for a reason. You might not get it, you might not understand it, you might not agree with it, and its outcomes might affect you, but it makes sense to the person that's doing it when they do it. And this is important because now we find ourselves in the space of of, of the scripture and we realize that the very first Benedict Arnold actually wasn't Benedict Arnold. It was a guy named Judas Iscariot. And Judas is going to get the similar same kind of rap that, that Benedict Arnold gets. He is going to be called a traitor. He's called the one that betrays Jesus. He's the one that should not just go to hell. He should be underneath the hell. There's a special compartment in hell for people that can betray a savior. We get it. We're going to tell the story about Judas. And we will dance and we will shout about the decision that Judas made and about how God had to overcome his betrayers and the ones that came against him and how you are going to have to overcome people that come against you and sometimes when people come against you, they actually push you and propel you forward. Even though you thought that they hate you, they actually was helping you. And you're going to dance and shout because that really is good preaching. But I, I think and I believe that Judas gets a bad rap. He gets a bad rap. He gets a bad rap. And I want to talk to you about why Judas made the decision that he made. Because all of us have made some crazy decisions. At least they were crazy to other people. They made perfectly good sense to you. And the church said. I want you to understand how this whole, this context works. And then I'm going to take you to Palm Sunday. Then we're going to go back into the Garden of Eden. But you have to understand something about Judas and where Judas comes from. Judas is known to us as Judas Iscariot, probably from Karit, which is a portion, which is a southern city in all of what we call Palestine or Israel to this day. That makes him very different than all the other 12 disciples that Jesus called to be of his service because the other 12 were from Galilee. They were raised in the northern part, more of the northern eastern part of the country where he was raised mostly in the southern eastern part of the country. They had different perspectives of their opinion about the prevailing government of that region. The prevailing government of that region was not Israel or Judaism or, or the Jewish community. The prevailing government was the Roman government. The Romans were the ones that pretty much dominated the entire landscape of the world at that particular time of, 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 uh, of history. In fact, so much to the degree that Israel was technically an occupied territory where Rome had taken their papal leaders and they had propped them and put them in different districts all throughout their countryside. This is who Pontius Pilate was. Pontius Pilate was no real king. He was a guy that the Roman government gave a position to so that, he could, so that the Roman government could keep their eyes on the Jewish people in their land. This is the way that the land operated. And they would rule over the Jewish people with an iron fist in some parts of the country. And in other parts of the country, they were much more amicable with the citizens. The north in Galilee was a place where they were much more amicable with the citizens. Why? Because Galilee represented a space where, all of, where, where industry was flourishing. On the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen, the fishing industry was a flourishing place where they could trade back and forth favors with the, Brit with the uh, Roman government. And they could somewhat kind of buy an easement of all of the Roman laws on who they were. 
Not only that, it became a space where they could go in and out with their military ships and they could bring troops back and forth. Galilee was an important place in the scripture and the people in general, even though they were occupied, they were treated better than people in the other parts of the countryside because their hands and their location was of benefit to the Roman government. Are y'all still with me this morning? This is the northern part where, not, where most of the disciples were from, but the southern part of the country was a very different portion. It was a harsher place. It was a place that had more desert land. It was a place that offered the Romans a lot less. So because the Romans could not get anything from the people or the land in the south, they ruled them very harshly. They demanded of them very harshly. They pushed their thumb on their backs, their knee on their backs. They dealt, dealt with the people very brutally in the southern parts of the country, very different than the experience that was in the northern part of the country. And that becomes important because the idea of Jesus Christ in the first century was not the same as the idea of Jesus Christ today. Today, he is a spiritual savior who is not here in body, but he is here in our spirit. In that day, his kingdom was not spiritual. They believed that his kingdom was going to be natural just like the Romans' kingdom was natural. When Jesus talked about reigning, they thought they were going to have a seat at the Caesar's palace. When they talked about him being a king, they thought that Jesus was going to go in and take over Rome and strip Caesar of his authority and sit on Caesar's throne and give him a crown. When they talked about positions, do you remember when they argued about positions in the kingdom? When the Bible says that they sat at the table and they began to argue and fuss about who was going to be higher in the kingdom. They thought, they were not thinking of a kingdom in a celestial world or kingdom in an unseen world. They were thinking that my children are going to see their dad have authority here on the earth. And I'm going to sit in an earthly space where people will watch us rule. Which meant that Jesus' overthrow of the government was not going to be by priest words and casting out demons. It was going to be by armies and swords and cannons, and they would fight for their victory. And the perception of them fighting for victory was different based off of their experiences. Judas, well, before we talk to Judas, let's talk about you. Because it is possible for you and I to experience the exact same thing but have different perspective based off of where we came from. It is possible for you to experience one thing uh, and, and be in the same experience as somebody else. And for one person, it's the best day of their life. And for another person, it's the worst day of their life. And if you want to know why one is crying and one is praising, all you got to do is go to their experience. Not what they're going through now, but how they got to the experience. And Judas Iscariot gets to this place where now Jesus has gathered all of his brethren just a week before this moment in scripture that we're going to talk about. He has gathered all his brethren and he sits them down at a dinner table and he starts to have a conversation with them at the final supper that he has. And he says that one of you guys is going to betray me tonight. He said, but all of you guys have a, a, will, will come with me into paradise and you will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of you is a devil. He said, all of you are going to reign with me, but one of y'all is the devil. And they wanted to know which one is the devil. And he said, he said the one by which I, put, I, put, I, I hold out my dip and they're going to put their bread in my dip. He said, that's the one that is the devil. And after he sticks his hand out, they, Judas puts his, his sop in his dip and he eats the bread. And Jesus tells him, now leave the table and go do what you're going to do. And Peter, James, and John, who were discussing who's going to be the one that's going to betray Jesus, had a sigh of relief because it wasn't them. They see Judas take off and nobody else at the table, the Bible says, even understood what was taking place. But Judas takes off and he goes and what happens next is Jesus gets up from the table and he tells them, hey, it's time for me to enter into this count, into this place. This is after, rather. He has entered into the place of the, the city of Jerusalem. This is after he has stood at the top of Mount Olives and sat on the donkey and came down into, the, into Jerusalem, which 
Topically speaking, it is the mountain of olives and Jerusalem is down at the base of the mountain. Jesus is literally at the top. He gets on the donkey and he starts making what we call the triumphal entry. When they began to take palm trees, I just came from Jerusalem. I could not believe it. There are palm trees everywhere in Jerusalem. They take the palms from the palm trees and lay them on the ground as his donkey is walking so that his donkey will never hit the ground. His donkey will never hit the dirt where commoners are, and they lay down the blank. It's like rolling out the red carpet so that he can have an entry into the red carpet. And the Bible says that Jesus stood at the top of the mountain while they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus stood at the top of the mountain crying because they didn't know what he knew or they did not understand how he was going to do what he promised him he'd do. Has God ever gave you a promise that you knew you were going to have, but he took you a road that you didn't want to get on to get to it? Am I by myself in this? Has God ever promised you something and you knew God was going good for the promise, but, but, but he's not good on the direction he's getting me to the promise right now. Like, I love you, Lord, but I'm not really trying to have to go the direction you want me to go. See, Jesus stood at the top of the mountain crying because Jesus knew that they had a perspective of the way that he was going to take them to victory, but he wasn't going to go the journey that they were believing. And here's what they were saying. Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna means save us, save us. Now let me tell you what they're not saying. What they're not saying is save my soul and get us to heaven. Save our soul and save us from the devil. That is not what they're saying. They are saying save us from Rome and give us our earthly power back. They are believing that he is now coming into Jerusalem to walk up to the rulers of Israel and to fight a battle that they will win. And he is going to set himself up and tell Caesar, now bring it on. They're not crying because they want to go to heaven. They're crying so that heaven could come to them. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. They put the palms down. He's going to be our new king. He's going to liberate us from the Jewish, from the, uh, from the uh, Roman oppression. He says, Hosanna, Hosanna. And while they're praising, Jesus is crying. Because, because I'm going to have to take them through something that they don't, they don't even know they got to go through in order to get what I promised them. And the Bible says that when he gets down, into Jerusalem and everyone is dancing and praising. He has all these moments. He has this final supper. And when he gets up from the final supper table, he walks and he starts to begin to realize that the, hour, the enormity of the hour is on his back now. And he tells his brothers, he says, listen, I got to go pray. I got to go to my garden and I got to pray. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane was not a special garden to Jesus like it is to us. The Garden of Gethsemane is likely a place that Jesus went regularly to go pray. It was probably a garden that was owned by one of his friends or somebody close to his family that would allow him to walk on his property and pray and talk to God. Jesus said, I got to get to my place where I can touch heaven. I got to get to my place. Anybody got a place that they go to when you got to talk to God? Anybody got a place? See, some of us grew up where God meets us in literal locations and places and, and sometimes when life gets too heavy I got to get away from all y'all and get to my place somebody anybody got a place somebody shout my place I got a place I got a place and I don't want nobody in that place when I'm talking to God and I don't want, and I don't bring my cell phone in that place and sometimes I don't even tell people where the place is because they'll come in the place when I'm trying to get to God and I don't need you messing up my communication when I'm in the place where God speaks to me am I talking to anybody that's got a place he got to his place and he brought his three, he brought the 12 disciples with him. He told nine of them to stay. He brought the other three. He told, he told Peter, James, and John, he said, why don't you guys stay here and just watch me pray? Because the weight of this enormous moment is starting to come on my shoulders. And the Bible said that the weight was so enormous on his shoulders that the blood that was in his veins began to rise up. The blood in his, in his, in his uh, 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 tissues began to rise up to the top part of his epidermis. And that is called hemohydrosis, a, a doctor's term. And that is a doctor's term that when your body begins 
begins to get so stressed, it starts to raise your blood level literally in your physical tissues until it starts to mix itself with the ducts that are, that are on the top level of your skin. And when your body starts to sweat, it starts to not only sweat the liquid from your body, but the blood that's in the epidermis that is right beneath the skin level. He began to sweat blood, the Bible says. It was so enormous on his shoulders that I'm stressing so much about the destiny and the purpose that God has given me that I'm sweating blood. Has there anybody had their body get off tick? You ever been through something so crazy that your body starts getting off? I want to talk to some folks that's been through some real stuff where your eyes start twitching or your hands start, you got, I, 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 your, your heart pace starts to get off. Have you ever been through so much that your body stops cooperating on its natural rhythms? Your cycle stops or your thinking breaks down. You can't remember stuff like you used to. I know I'm talking to somebody in here because there is a weight that your body starts to respond to when your mind can't handle it. Your spirit has to hold it, but your body will respond to the fact that this is too much. His body was saying, this is too much, this is too much. So much that eventually his mouth agreed with his body. And he said, Father, if there is another way for you to take this cup away from me, please take this cup away. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The Bible says he got up and he went to his road dogs that were standing and watching and praying. And instead of standing and watching and praying, they were laying, sleeping, and snoring. The Bible said he woke them up and he asked them, can you not just stay with me for a few moments? I'm in the, in the thick of my journey. I'm in the heat of my life. I'm in the hardest part of my life. And I need somebody to stand by me through this journey. Have you ever been in a place where, you, where, where everything around you felt like it laid down, went to sleep and started snoring? And you were in the middle of a journey, but everything that used to support you couldn't support you. Can I submit to you that it ain't their fault that God put them in the sleep because this thing you got to do by your this thing I got to go through by myself and he's not anointed to go through this she don't have the prayers to get me through this he doesn't have the laying on her hands to get me out of what I got to go through because there are some things in this life that you can't be supported through there are some things you just got to grit your teeth and say if God be for me who can be against me and I'm going to march through the fire even if I have to march by myself I need some fire walkers to raise your voice and give God a shout of praise. He says, he says, the Bible said, he went back and began to pray again. He was praying, Father, Father, if you, if you can take this cup away from me, take it away from me. And the Bible says, he said, but nevertheless not, my will but your will be done. And the Bible says that the angels came and ministered to him. And while the angels were ministering and God was praying and he was talking, the Bible says that Judas shows up with 600 Roman soldiers. And they spot him in the garden. And the commander of the armies grabbed Judas and says, which one of them is it? He said, go, tell me which one he is. Bible says he went up to Jesus. He kissed him and he left. And Jesus said, Wait, 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 wait. You betray me with a kiss? Of, of all the ways that you could betray me? You betray me with, with a kiss? And I've heard some good preachers. Preach the paint off the walls about folks that'll smile on your face and then destroy you behind your back. People that will kiss you. That the litmus test for real relationship is not the kiss. It's what happens after and before the kiss. And I've heard some good preachers say, you better be careful who you let kiss you because everybody that kiss you isn't for you. And, and too many of us have been kissed, and we took the kiss to mean trust. And because we took trust and kiss and made them become the same thing, we're in the predicaments that we're in right now because the litmus test was never the kiss. It was where you worth it before the kiss. But, 
But, but that's not what Jesus is actually saying here in the text when he asked him, you betray me with a kiss. What he's saying is, in the ancient days, and even today, we in the Western world and many on the far eastern part of the country, we tend to be less intimate with one another than without explicitness. When somebody says, yeah, we're intimate. We're not intimate. We're explicit. And and in 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 the other parts of the world, they are not as explicit as our, our culture is, but they are more intimate than our culture. In Africa, you stand and, and, and two men might be holding hands while they're talking, and there's nothing sexual about it. It's just intimacy. In the Middle East, you might watch a 15-year-old boy lay his head in his father's lap and see his father kiss his son, and it's not sexual. It is it's, it's intimacy. In the United States, we have been trained to do, to do everything that is apart from each other unless it is explicit not intimate and we have a, a, a warped view of intimacy because in our world we view intimacy through explicitness but in the Bible time and in other parts of the world they view it the exact opposite is that I can be intimate without being explicit and for him to go and kiss Jesus was a sign of his true friendship and intimacy with him when he came to kiss Jesus he did not just come to identify him with the kiss he came because he genuinely loved Jesus he genuinely honored Jesus and he was caught between the crossroads of his character and God's purpose. And he showed up with weakened character in front of a man that had extreme purpose. And he did not know how to raise his character to the level of the moment. So in his weakened character, he expressed his intimacy. And he was in a crossbow of life, of being in a place with a man that I love and being in a spot where my character is being challenged. I love you, but I hate that I'm about to do this to you. I'm not strong enough not to, but one thing that can't be denied, I do love you. I, I wish I had the character not to be here, but I'm here. But, but, but don't think that it means that I don't care. I just didn't have the character to find another way. And he kisses him with the kiss not of a betrayer, but the kiss of a man who had just been walking with a savior for three and a half years. A man who was given the same anointing that the other 11 had been given. A man who had been blown on by the Holy Spirit the same way the other 11 had been blown on by the Holy Spirit. He was a man that saw Jesus raise the dead, saw Jesus open up blinded eyes. He was a man that was able to be a part of the miracles of feeding the 5,000 and raising a young girl up who had been in her room dead for days before Jesus showed up. He had been a part of the journey of operating with God. He was not a man that did not love God and did not like God. He was a man that could not have the strength of character that could honor God the way he deserved to be God. And when your character cannot sustain your honor, betrayal is at your door. Oh. <laughs> He kisses, and, and we have given Peter, excuse me, we have given Judas the bad rap. He's the betrayer, but we don't know the story of Peter, of, of Judas. We don't know why Judas operated in it. Somebody in your Sunday school class told you that the devil filled him, and that's why he went and did the evil thing. But the Bible doesn't say that he was filled with the devil, meaning possessed by the devil, but he was influenced by the devil. And that doesn't make him any different than any of the rest of us that can do some horrible things when the devil meets us at a place of an opportune moment. And, and you don't have to look at me like you super sanctimonious. You don't have to be filled with the devil in order to do bad things. All you have to do is be in the wrong place in the right situation for you to be tempted to do something you shouldn't be doing. Need some money and walk into a room where there are no cameras and a whole bunch of money and you're going to be in a character crisis. Am I preaching to anybody in here? Be in an argument in your house and all the good loving have been withheld from you for two or three weeks and go on the road and do what God has called you to do for two or three days and let opportunity meet your issue and see if you're not in a character crisis. I know you sanctified, but all of us have a situation that if we walk in the wrong situation, our character is going to be testized and challenged.
Uh, y'all at the City of Hope. I, I, I don't know where y'all thought y'all was at, but this is the place where it, 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 it don't get more real than what you're going through right now. I need somebody that can open up their mouth and be honest and shout, I've been in a situation. Shout, yeah. He's, he's in a moment where, where he's, he's not about to do this just because he's a horrible man. He's about to do this because he has a history. And his history with the Roman government is that they can be very heavy-handed and that they would destroy the people and the places and the folks that he loves, that he grew up with, that he did his life with, where he got his first teeth cut in ministry, that they would get it more heavy-handed than the other disciples who are in Galilee. I get that the people in Galilee want to go and fight because if they lose, it ain't going to be no sweat off of their back because they have something to give back to Rome. But my folks down in the south if the if the grits hit the pan and we don't come out as victors our families are going to be slaves from generation to generation and it's not that I don't love you Jesus I'm just a little afraid right now that these 600 men are stronger than us 12 and the reason why I'm betraying you is not because I'm bad but because I love them so much I don't want to see you lose and they have to pay the price you get off easy on a cross and die. And they have to live under your failure. Uh, everybody's got a story. You didn't get here because you didn't have a back context. You didn't go crazy because you didn't have a back context. Everybody's got something that they came from that brings them to this point in Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is not just about Jesus battling his will. It's about the transection of the history of Judas coming with the destiny of God. And they're colliding with one another. And Jesus now, who is on his way to destiny, has to now figure out how he's going to handle Judas. And Jesus succumbs to what Judas is giving when he takes the kiss of Judas because he he understands that his history is the reason why he is the way he is. And I wish that more of us had the mind of Christ and we would cut people a break that act out today based off of the history they never dealt with. Peter now pulls out his sword because Peter had his off and warped thought about what Jesus meant about the kingdom as anybody else did. It wasn't just Judas that didn't quite understand the kingdom. Peter didn't understand the kingdom either. Peter, watch this, Peter is a fisherman who has picked up a sword because Peter thinks that we are going to fight this battle with swords and with cannons, not going to fight this battle with death and with victory. He believes that there's going to be an earthly kingdom that they're going to sit on, and he's about to protect his king. So he pulls out his sword, and Malchus is his name. He cuts the ear off of Malchus, and, and the Bible says that Jesus told Peter, Hold it, you're going to mess up my destiny. He said, this has to happen as well. And Peter, <laughs> Peter, are you really fighting for me? Because my destiny is that I'm arrested and go to a cross. I've been preaching that to you for the last three years. So are you protecting me? Or are you protecting who you're going to be in three days? Oh, God, I wish I was preaching to somebody in here. I'm I wish I, I wish I was talking to somebody in here. See, here's what happens, and this is why it's the problem. See, Judas, the reason why we have given Judas such a horrible rap, we say things about Judas that the Bible never says about Judas. We say Judas is going to go to hell, and he's going to die because he betrayed God, but the Bible never says that Judas is going to go to hell and that he's going to die. In fact, Jesus said that all 12 of you are going to reign with me in the next life, and you're going to be over the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, and one of you is a devil. In other words, he's saying while one of you is a devil, I'm still saying that all 12 of you are going to reign with me and you are going to be over the 12 tribes of Israel. So you being a devil is not going to stop what I have called you out to be. And we have put him in hell and he can't reign if he's in hell. Y'all are not talking back to me. He can't reign with God if he doesn't make it where God is. But we are committed. Uh, 
We are committed and have committed ourselves to Judas being the bad guy. God, I wish I was preaching to somebody. And you can make Judas the bad guy. You can make him the bad guy if you want. You can make Judas the bad guy because he is the guy that betrayed Jesus. He is the guy that lied on Jesus. He is the guy that cut a deal with the Roman army for 30 pieces of silver so that he can, uh, he can increase his finances. He is the guy that the Bible said he actually stole from the money, t- the money tr- deal, that he was in charge of the treasury, and he used to skim from the top of the treasury. We understand that he's got some bad stuff, and the church has taught us that he was a horrible man, and yes, he did do some horrible things and perhaps that makes him a horrible man but before you make him a horrible man you better back up the story and talk about this Peter that you have come to love this same Peter that was both a liar and a quitter on the mystery on the on the kingdom of God you better back up and talk about this Martha that you have come to love this Martha that got indignant to the Savior's faith you better back up and talk about James and John the sons of thunder who Jesus had to rebuke because they had no conscience for operating in grace we honor them but we are determined to be angry with Judas and what makes Judas any different if Peter can be forgiven at the side of the sea of Galilee if Martha can be with Mary at the tomb if the children of thunder can be given positions in the kingdom of God what stops Judas what stops, I'll tell you what stops Judas. What stops Judas is that you need Judas. What stops Judas is that you need a bad guy. What stops Judas, why, why we don't give him the benefit of the doubt is because you need somebody to point to and say, this is why I didn't go to college. And this is why I didn't have children. And this is why I don't have a good marriage. And this is why, if my mother wouldn't have, and if my daddy wouldn't have, and we have to have a Judas. The reason why you have the Judas in your mind is because you have to have him. He gives you an excuse for everything that has gone wrong in your life. Oh, I wish I was talking to somebody in here. He gives you a reason to be angry, to be frustrated, to not try, to quit, to have failure in your life. But let me tell you something about Judas. If you're going to blame him for all the horrible stuff, you better blame him for all the good stuff that happened in your life too. Because if Judas didn't betray you, he wouldn't have got arrested and taken to a cross. He would not have died. He would not have rose again. If it would have happened the way Peter planned it, Jesus would have never got up. And you better get a grip on the Judas in your life because the hurt that messed up your mind is also the hurt that strengthened your faith. The hurt that messed up your heart is the hurt that gave you wisdom. I need somebody to raise your voice and give God a praise for your Judas. I said give him a praise for your Judas. Why do we need Judas, Peter? Peter pulls out his sword and Peter has to prolong the destiny of the Savior for as long as he can. Because if the Savior ever starts going to destiny, it won't just be Judas' character that we see. Uh, I'm a, if, if, if Jesus gets through this garden moment, maybe I can prolong the garden moment one more day so I can figure it out. Because, because if he goes through this garden in a day or so, it won't just be Judas that they're talking about. It'll be my character. And one of the reasons why we need a Judas is so that perhaps maybe the world will never see where you're deficient. <laughs> I'm preaching better than y'all shouting amen for. Is that maybe the world will never see. Never see that you, that you got an angry attitude. Maybe never, the world will never see that you're stingy. Maybe the world will never see that you're angry. Maybe the world will never see that you're broken as everybody else. Maybe the world will never see that you need help. So I just keep propping up and magnifying the faults of my neighbor and the faults of my brother and the faults of the pastor and the faults of other people in my life. I just keep magnifying their faults so maybe you're focused on Judas and never ask, Peter, why did you pull out a sword? Why? Why did you try to stop destiny? (laughs) The Bible says 
The Bible says, the Bible says that Jesus takes the man's ear and puts it back on his and heals him. But even the miracle of him healing the ear didn't stop the Romans from arresting him and taking him. God help me in this place. I want to preach to all y'all that think that you're going to change people's minds about you just because you do a lot of good stuff about them. The reality, they was committed to who Jesus was, just like some of us are committed to who Judas is. But the reality is that God never tried to get them to change his mind about him. God just wanted to get him to go get me to purpose. And if getting me to purpose means that I got to stop Peter and heal his ear, whether you honor my ear or whether you put your sword away, get me to my purpose. Because I'm not here for the applause of Peter and I'm not here to get you to stop coming against me. But as a matter of fact, I have to go through this in order to get to where God promised me and God sent me here to tell a handful of folks in this building that you have to go through what you're going through in order to get to where God called you I've got to I got to go through being talked about. I got to go through being lied on. I got to go through all of the nitpicky stuff and I got to go through what else do I have to go through? I've got to go through I got to go through I have to go through the reality that maybe Judas wasn't that bad after all. Maybe the kiss that Judas gave me wasn't the kiss of a betrayer, but the kiss of a person that really loved me. Maybe, maybe all of the beatings weren't because your mama wanted to give an emotional scar to you. Maybe it was because that's the only way she knew how to protect you in a world that would not be precious to you like she's trying to be to you. And here you are 20 years later. You're the one that's got me in these scars. You're the one that put me in messed up. And she's trying to say that I know it hurts you, but, but I was trying to kiss you at the same time. I know I didn't realize Jesus said, Judas, I'm not going to make you my enemy. And neither am I going to take my promise away from you. Because I understand. I know the history. And right now, we're at an intersection of your history and my destiny. And I choose my destiny over making you feel bad about your history. Stand to your feet all over this building. Because I got a feeling that Judas and Jesus aren't the only two at a crossroad trying to figure out how they're going to deal with each other. Do you realize that most of the people that hurt you, if the statistics are correct, didn't realize they were hurting you when they hurt you? They were operating off of a context and a pretext that in many cases felt like they were adding to the situation, maybe felt like they were protecting you, that in many cases it wasn't just their own personal gain. Judas did it for the 30 pieces of silver. The Bible says he took the silver and threw it in the grass. He threw it in the grass because it was never about the silver. Yeah, he did a few things, and yeah, he was a little greedy. Yeah, he was a little this, he was a little that. But but which one of us wasn't that? He threw it because it was never about that. What he realized in that moment, he says, I have the innocent blood, innocent man's blood on my hands. What he realized in that moment was something about the kingdom of God. What he realized is that the kingdom of God didn't come with swords and with armies. But the kingdom of God came with power and with authority and with anointing. And this Savior was going to take that power and anointing. And he was going to take it into the highest place in the land. And he was going to declare who God called him to be in the face of adversity. And they were going to kill him for it. They were going to kill him for it. They're going to kill him for it. But it couldn't have happened any other way.
You want your resurrection? You want your next season? You want the time where your dead season is going to come back to life? It can't happen any other way. So Jesus understood this challenge. Is that I love to hate Judas because of what he did to me. And now I hate that I have to love Judas. Because I hate what he did to me. Because it hurt me. But I have to love him because I got to get past it. And if either of them don't work, I don't get to my destiny. Because I don't get to my destiny if he don't hurt me. And neither do I get there if I hate him for it. Who can ascend to the hill of the high God? He that has clean hands and you can't hate somebody in your hands. So in that moment, the Savior says, it has to be this way. It's all good. It's all good. And we'll leave them in the Roman soldiers' arms until this time next week. Lift those hands all over this building. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for those people that had to make a boogeyman. That had to make a Judas. That had to make an angry somebody that could justify your anger and could justify your writs of rage. That could justify you being absent. That could justify your lack of intimacy. I want to talk to you that have had to make Judas the worst person in the world so that you could appear to be correct and right and more righteous. I want to pray for you because you don't need Jesus. Judas, you need Jesus. You don't need a Judas. You need a Jesus. And God didn't give you a Satan so that you could feel better about yourself. He gave you a Savior so you could feel better about yourself. So, Father, today in the name of Jesus, lift those hands all over this building. If I was preaching to you, lift those hands. Father, in the name of Jesus, every hurt, everything from our journey that brought us to this road, heal us from it. Because when I show up, God, I'm going to show up broken, and I'm going to show up hurt, and I'm going to show up maimed. When I show up, God, I'm going to show up with the perspective of a hurt, broken, and maimed person. And, God, I may not understand how to deal with rational situations because I'm so skilled, and I may bring my brokenness to the decision table, and I may make a horrible decision. And I need there to be a God that has the grace to cover my history that is messing up my present that will ultimately ruin my future. Father, I thank you that you are in the house today. I give you the praise that you're in this place today and you're stripping away excuses. You're saying I went to the cross to take away the excuse of your Judas. I went to the cross to take away your excuse for failure or your excuse for apathy or your excuse for lack of trying. I go to a cross to take it away and today is the day of your salvation. You can dream again, you can hope again, and you don't have to pull out your sword, Peter. Because if you can understand the grace that I'm giving in this garden, you won't run from the cross when you fail me. You will stay there. From my heart to the Jesus. He's healing right now. Lift those hands and worship him. He's, he's healed. If you can give him about 30 seconds of worship, I promise you I'll let you out of here. To the give him worship where you're standing. He's healing. He understands how you got here. He understands what you went through to get here.